Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and joining me today at the microphone is Tim Cockrell. Tim and I will be seeking to dig a little deeper into the passage that served as a subject matter of his sermon this past weekend, and that's Matthew chapter 25. And Tim, we are in our eighth month. I, it's hard to believe that back on August 1, we started this before you were even here yep. in Ohio. And uh, we're studying Jesus' life and ministry. Of course, we're coming near the end. And, and with Easter quickly approaching now, we're here in the middle of March, I'm guessing that we're on schedule to be celebrating Easter as we study Matthew's take on that specific event. Can, can you share with us and just kind of prepare us for the remaining schedule as we near the end of the book? Absolutely. So this next week, we're going to be looking at Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, which is really a an interesting contrast between the woman who poured out this expensive mm. perfume on Jesus and Judas, who at the same time is betraying Jesus for really a fraction of what that perfume would have cost. And then on March 27th, we're going to look at the, the Last Supper and Jesus's agony in Gethsemane. And then on April 3rd, Jeremy Kimball is going to be preaching for us on the trial of Jesus and the denial of Peter. And then on Palm Sunday, this is going to be an interesting one, we're going to cover all of Matthew 27, which is everything from, you know, standing before Pilate to the humiliation of Christ, the crucifixion and the burial. And, you know, that really just prepares us then for the hope that we have on Easter morning where we'll cover uh, Matthew 28 the first part of it, but then the following week, we're going to do the Great Commission, you know, because we really want to take the the message of hope that we have in the resurrection and emphasize our responsibility to then bring it to our community, to our neighbors, as well as, of course, around the world. Well, it's been a rich time of study. Certainly appreciate all the work that's gone into this. I know you've put in a lot of work. You ramped up uh, right away coming in to join us, and uh, a big thanks to the preaching team who's carried such a load over this past eight months. Absolutely. Well, Tim, before we get into chapter 25, I would like to go back and pick up on a point that Chris Miller last week was making, and I want to take it a step further in relation to a part of chapter 24. I had asked Chris and why he didn't mention the rapture. We talk mm-hmm. about the rapture here in, in our context. We believe that Jesus is going to uh, come to sin with a shout, and uh, the scripture says, and call those who are dead in Christ first, Thessalonians mm-hmm. says, Paul says there, and then those who remain. Maine will meet him in the air. We believe that we're going to be that group of the church is going to be gone for seven years, yeah, seven year tribulation. Mm-hmm. Then we have a text like here in verse forty and forty one, though. You know, Chris said, well, I didn't preach it because it wasn't in chapter 24. We have a verses uh, like 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken away and one left. One or two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one left. That sounds like a rapture. Mm-hmm. What's what gives here? Right. So I think it is really important to clarify this because when you're reading and when we even think about the, the second coming of Jesus, we as Christians look forward to the rapture for reasons. You know, we look at First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians and um, the, the hope that we have there. But I, I agree with what Chris has said that this is the second coming at the end of that tribulation period, just before the millennium in which Christ will come. And as we then see in chapter 25, 
separate the nations to the sheep and the goats. And so I think the key to the the text that you just read is actually in the preceding two verses where he says, it's just like in the day in which Noah entered the ark and they were all unaware until the flood came and it swept them away. So also will be the coming of the son of man. And then it goes on to describe there will be two people. One will be taken and one will be left. So opposite the rapture, when we have the rapture, you know, the Christians will be taken. In this coming, the Christians will be left. They'll be the ones who remain on the earth and the others will be swept away. And, and that's where I think when we understand the, the sheep and the goats judgment, it's this judgment of who's coming into the millennium. And that's different than the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. But that the believers who remain on the earth will then enter into the millennial kingdom live under the rule of Christ for a thousand years while Satan is bound in hell. And then only after that thousand years will Satan once more be given the opportunity to deceive the nations, to lead a final rebellion, and then he will be destroyed. And that final great white throne judgment will be that last decisive act of judgment. So somewhat of a reverse rapture, if you will. Somewhat, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Well, I had a couple people ask that question, Mm -hmm. and uh, I thought I'd bring it to you. So now let's go ahead and move into chapter 25. And we have here in in much of this chapter two very well-known parables that Jesus is using to provide additional teaching on the points he made back in chapter 24. And we haven't really discussed much throughout this study. We've hit on it a little bit, but not uh, not regularly and certainly not super intensely about Jesus's use of parables. Mm. Can you give us a quick primer on, on the significance of parables, what they are versus what they are not, how we should read them, some things we might want to be careful of? Absolutely. Yeah, so parables are a teaching tool that Jesus regularly uses that reveals truth to some, but then conceals truth from many. And we're thankful that in certain cases, Jesus actually unpacks what that parable means for us. Because in some cases we say, I'm not sure how best to interpret this. So I think about the parable of the soils in which Jesus describes the the sower who goes out and puts the seed on the different soils. And he goes on to explain that the the rocky soil is the heart that that never receives it, and then the the thorny soil, the where the thorns are, it gets choked out by the cares of the world, and and then obviously the good soil that produces a good crop. And so, in most cases, the parables are an independent story that are calling our attention to one specific point. And they were stories that would have been very vivid in terms of how they communicated the regular life of the everyday person. So he's using sheep, he's using slaves and servants, he's using wedding celebrations and and farmers that are sowing seed. These all would have been images that would have been very familiar to them. And I think that's the power of a word picture is it takes something we already know and begins to leverage that to help us understand something that we don't know. And and I think if we understand that when we go into looking at parables, it helps us to look at them from the right perspective, that there's a single, in most cases, a single point that's being communicated. So in the parables that we looked at in Matthew 25, the parable of the 10 young maidens, the single point here is be prepared for his coming. In the parable of the talents, the single point is be faithful until his coming. And as far as dangers, I think one of the dangers that people can run into 
is that they begin to, to do what we call allegorical interpretation. That is, they begin to look for some hidden, deeper spiritual meaning in every facet of the story. You know, so for instance, the parable of the ten maidens. Okay, well, well, what is the oil that they have to have? And it's the Holy Spirit. And, and what's the significance of of the number ten? And you know, what is the torch? And what does it mean to trim the torch or, or you know trim the wick? And I think those things are ultimately where we can get really unhelpful, because the simple point of the story is be prepared for his coming. And as we said on Sunday, Jesus doesn't make clear what that is until later on in the text. And so when we understand the parable as Jesus intended it, it focuses our heart on kind of that one big idea. Now, are you really, are you suggesting then that perhaps the parable of the talents is not a treatise on the superiority of capitalism versus, <laughs> are you saying that? I would say that. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But well, I mean, I think no, that's, I appreciate a, that. that's a humorous example of, of how sometimes we can twist things around and and assume that it's somehow endorsing something. I mean, the the clearest example is of the shrewd servant who is, <laughs> is going to get fired because he's mishandled his master's money. And so he goes and starts canceling debts left and right in order to make himself, you know, alliances. We certainly wouldn't look at that parable and say, here's Jesus is telling us, here's how you ought to do business as right. a, a an employee or an employer. The simple point of that text is simply, if you know your time is limited, you're going to leverage every opportunity in order to accomplish the highest priority goal. And it gets back to what we talk about regularly, context. Yep. Realize what Jesus is really saying. So, okay, so Jesus first shares the parable of the ten virgins here in chapter 25. And it just appears that these were individuals who wanted to be in on the excitement of the marriage feast, especially these five, but maybe all ten, mm-hmm. but who didn't really want to do the hard work of preparation, these five. Uh, the story, it, it does remind me of the of the charge that the Apostle Paul gives to the Ephesian believers in chapter 2, verse 10 of his book, or his letter to the Ephesians. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Being ready, being prepared, doing the work that we are called to do. Being a Christian isn't for the lazy person, is it? Not at all. And I, I'm really glad you brought up Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, because I think it's so important for us as Christians to differentiate being saved for good works and being saved by good works. And I think that's the heart of the legalist begins to imagine that we are saved by our good works, that that somehow is the cause of our right standing before God. But being saved for good works says that it's the natural outflow, the outworking of our right relationship, our true identity with him. And so we see later on in this text that genuine believers were those whose lives were transformed by God in a way that then their service from others naturally flowed out of them. You know, so they didn't even realize, Lord, when do we do these things? It's because it was just a natural outworking of who they were. They weren't trying to, to strive and earn for acceptance. And so I remember once I heard in a sermon, and it just has stuck with me, that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Hmm. And, and And so... As we are rightly related to God, it actually ought to be the fuel. Grace ought to be the fuel for our service, not guilt. And again, those are, are dramatically different things. If I'm serving out of guilt, it's out of a sense of, oh, God's going to be angry with me or punish me or, or maybe even reject me altogether if I don't get my act together or work harder. But when it's out of grace, it says, God, I love you more than anything. I would give anything 
to serve you. And we'll actually see a beautiful picture of that in the woman who anoints Jesus here in Matthew 26. And and Paul's admonition to the Philippians, the Philippian believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, just goes right along with that, it seems. Yes, absolutely. That when our hearts are rightly prepared for the coming of Christ, then we're going to be focused on what has he called us to be doing until he comes? And I want to jump to on, on a statement you made, and you, you spend a little bit of time here talking about retirement. Mm. In our society, we are encouraged. We've got there's two, There are two pet topics of mine. I, I was sharing with you a little earlier. I taught in a class here, an adult Bible fellowship here at Grace for about 10 years uh, of our elderly individuals. And that's something I really tried to keep bringing back. Retirement shouldn't be... For us, although, I mean, we can enjoy it. We should enjoy it. Retirement from a daily job or whatever it might be, retirement from the need of having to work in order to provide for our daily sustenance should be for God's glory, not our comfort. Absolutely. And that's where I think when we understand the parable of the talents, that our our future hope in heaven is not that it's going to be an eternal glorified vacation where we sit by the pool and you know are sipping cold drinks, but rather that we are invested with greater responsibility, greater opportunity to be serving. And so if we are genuinely preparing for his coming, looking forward to that day, then we shouldn't say, hey, now that I'm at this particular age, I get a free pass until I get to my future vacation, but rather I'm nearing the finish line and I want to press with every bit of energy, every resource that's been entrusted to me, so that when Jesus calls me home, that, that I'm finishing well. And I mentioned on Sunday, and I believe this with all my heart, we have some beautiful examples of that here at Grace. We have a, such a rich blend of ages, and our senior adults are wonderful examples. I was in prayer meeting this past week and was praying with a number of them and just seeing their faith and their diligence to be serving one another, to be serving our church family. As a pastor, I have to tell you that that's just an enormous encouragement and a great way for me to to grow as I learn from their wisdom. Well, I said there are two areas. One is retirement and another is inheritance. And sometime we we can talk (laughs) about that maybe about the a godly use of an inheritance Mm. and a godly uh, perspective on inheritance. I'll leave that hanging there. (laughs) But, uh, you know, one might be able to say, I really want to be watchful and I want to be ready for Christ's coming. This is what uh, Jesus is sharing here and what he's teaching. What are some key things that anyone can do right now, whether they've been a believer for a, a month or 75 years, regardless of education, length of time serving God, or, or whatever other station of life uh, situation they might find themselves in? Right. I think the first thing I would say, it's going to sound just very simplistic, almost Sunday schoolish, but it's stay focused on God as your greatest treasure. You know, if if we really want to be living for eternity we have to remember that that's where our citizenship is. And so many times I fear that we we end up digging through the trash of the world to try to satisfy our desires when God has prepared a banquet feast for us to enjoy. And so there are a lot of things that can distract us. There are a lot of things that can draw our desires and our hearts away from him. And, and so as kingdom citizens, we really want to find our greatest joy and our deepest satisfaction in him. And if we have that then the other aspects of service and ministry will flow from that. And it also guards us from going down dead-end roads where we're really pursuing counterfeit joy and superficial satisfaction. 
And then I, the second thing I would say is just to stay focused on our task. I really liked that that image of a volunteer firefighter. I had read that in, in a resource I was looking at. I was like, that's exactly what we need to be of constantly prepared, knowing it's not a matter of if, but when we're going to be called to to serve or, or to ultimately give an account before the Lord. So, you know, that includes studying God's word, that we want to know him and understand Lord, what is your will for me as a husband, as a father, as a church member, as a friend, as an employee? Uh, Looking for ways to steward our gifts and our opportunities in ways that honor God and serve others in a way that we know pleases God. And then sharing Christ. When we think about the fact that Christ's return could be at any moment, Hmm. when that day comes, the door is closed once and for all. And as much as we can, we want to beg people to to know Christ and to trust in him. And we recognize that ultimately God is sovereign over salvation. We, we can't save anybody. But I pray that we do everything that we can to make sure that they don't go into eternity without having heard not just the message, but the heart behind it, that we long for them to repent and believe. Okay, you're about six weeks early, I think, because I know that's going to be, that's, what we're, that's really the crescendo we're working towards there, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Exactly. But, but I think you're bringing up the point, Matthew 28 is not disconnected right. from what Jesus has already been saying. Even these discourses has been preparing his disciples to be the kingdom citizens he's called them to, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, of the type of integrity that we need to live for, the, the type of watchfulness that we see here in, in chapters 24 and 25, that then when he gives them this commission, it's almost like their graduation, you know, to where he says, I've prepared you to be disciples. Now I will be with you until the end of the age, but I'm calling you to be my witnesses to go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the earth. Well, so let me open up here a little bit, and I, I'm going to tell you something that – what you're saying, I, boy, I engage with that. I love it. Uh, we need to invest what God has given us, and just like he's saying here in that second parable, invest it and make it greater and, and really uh, work to expand our, our reach. The danger that I often run up against, and I know you do too and anybody else who's seeking to serve the Lord, it's very easy at that point to then find our identity in that, whatever we do, Mm -hmm. whatever God has given us, as opposed to in Christ, whether it's, well, I'm a giver. Mm. And so I just need to keep working hard, hard, so I can just give more, and that's where I find my identity. Or I am a teacher, mm-hmm. or I'm an elder, I'm a deacon, I am a greeter, I'm, and I, I'll just use that, and that's, mm-hmm. that can often compartmentalize our, our lives too much, I'm going to suggest. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I would agree. And that's where one of the parables that I love is just a really simple parable. It's in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10 where Jesus describes a master who has servants who are are doing what he's told them to do. And he says, if they do that, are they expecting that the master is going to come in and congratulate them for all the work that they've done? He says, no, they'll simply say, we are unworthy servants and we've only done what we should have done. And as much as we don't maybe love that servant or even slave is more true to the image, that imagery I think it does help us to remember every one of us are sinners saved by grace. Every resource we have to steward, every opportunity, every gift that we have to exercise, we're doing for him. And so 
anything that is accomplished, he's the one that gets the glory. Any people that are redeemed, he's the one who has done the work. We just get a privilege of being a small part of it. And so I think it's that humility that says, I'm simply an unworthy servant who's been saved by grace and included in what God is doing, but he's the king. And that's where my focus needs to be. Continuing to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves from whence we truly come. Absolutely. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, so similarly in that second parable dealing with the talents, God's people are called to be diligent in the use and in the development of what God has given them. There's a principle here of investing for eternity, and Jesus, as you've already shared a little bit, isn't talking only about money, but he is talking also about money. Certainly. No, it would include all of those things. And I think one of the things that's confusing for us as we look at the parable of the talents is in English, we use the word talent for a skill or ability. But in the context, everybody would have known that's an amount of money. And so they would have immediately been thinking kind of in economic terms. But I believe in the story, Jesus is referring to every resource, every opportunity that he's entrusted to us. And so you probably have heard the the phrase that it refers to our time, our talents, and our treasure. And so where we are investing those things ultimately reveal what we love and trust and obey. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Because our, our money, our time, our attention follows what it is that we really love. And so the expectation is that as Jesus gives us resources and opportunities, that we then take the initiative to go use those things for him. Mm -hmm. That means we have to resist the temptation to use it for ourselves, you know, whether it's for business or for popularity or attention. But I also appreciate the fact that as the two faithful servants go out, they do hard work over a long period of time that nobody's there congratulating them for or rewarding them for. They're just being diligent and faithful and persevering until the master comes back. And I think it's also worth noting here that the master does not give the same number of talents to every servant. And one of the things I feel like every one of us can fall victim to is the danger of comparison, right? Oh man, if I had that person's gift or, well, this person is is working a full-time job and raising their kids and doing this other thing, you know, I just feel like I'm not measuring up. And I think we really have to recognize that the person who was entrusted with five talents earned five talents more and they were rewarded with well done, good and faithful servant. The person who was given two talents earned two talents more, and their reward was the exact same thing. That God's reward is not based on fruitfulness necessarily, but faithfulness. And I just want to encourage anybody who's listening that when you feel that danger of comparison or feeling like you don't measure up, focus on what God has given you and live for an audience of one. Because every one of us can fall into that temptation of, man, if only... But if only is really the thief of joy and distracts us from what God has ultimately called us to be doing. And questions God unnecessarily, Mm -hmm. doesn't he know? Tim, uh, my interest is peaked. You're talking about individuals. This is true also for a church. Uh, Corporately, you and I sat in a meeting here recently where we were talking about funds. And God has blessed Grace Baptist Church Mm -hmm. uh, financially in uh, some really 
trying time what are trying times for mm-hmm. other uh, churches and other not-for-profit organizations uh, faith-based and otherwise but we as a corporate body need to be faithful and and this is something we're talking about how can we take some surpluses that we have and invest them back into the ministry and this is really the same concept absolutely and it's because the people of our church family are being faithful stewards. They're, they're giving generously to the work of God. And that's one of the responsibilities that the leadership team then has in any church is to steward those funds well and, and to invest for the kingdom, to keep kingdom priorities. And I just so appreciated the, the conversation we had as elders, and I'm excited as since then conversations have continued to flow as to how God might lead us to maximize kingdom impact through the generosity of the people of grace. I had one of those conversations just Sunday uh, with uh, one of our members and members of our finance committee. Really good stuff. Mm. And exciting to see how God might use that to bless some people, but really to promote his name, the message of, of Christ. Well, uh, Tim, it just strikes me, we really ought not to dismiss here the opportunity that this passage uh, avails us of to deal with the topic of hell. Now, you mentioned in on Sunday your uh, concept, your belief that, that we don't talk enough about that horrible but, but really true doctrine of hell. And especially in light of what is just a continuing, I'm going to call it what it is, I believe, a heresy you referenced, mm-hmm. there is a point at which God's going to say, done, mm-hmm. done, no no more opportunities. But it's being preached by so many throughout the church, even, and in popular culture. Can you comment on that, and especially as it pertains to Jesus' teaching there in this latter part of chapter 5, following the the, uh, message about the talents, he talks about the sheep and goats. He talks about an eternal fire. Mm -hmm. How can we get around that? Well, we can't, and and we shouldn't. But it is uncomfortable, isn't it? And I think one of the reasons why Christians often shy away from it is because we have a low view of God's holiness— and a small view of our sin. But when we minimize hell, we also minimize the gospel. Because the very message of the gospel is that Christ took hell for us. Mm. He endured the wrath of God so that we didn't have to. It minimizes Christ, too. Exactly. Really does. But you know, many people, I think, in our culture shy away from the doctrine of hell because it feels harsh. You know, they, they view it almost like barbaric folklore, you know, King Arthur and, and Camelot type of, of fanciful stories. But some people will also try to soften hell by saying it's, it's really just an annihilation, you know, that, that you experience judgment for a brief moment, but then you just cease to exist. But that isn't what Jesus says. He talks about it where the worm does not die. But then as you mentioned with universalists, many people will say, well, everyone ultimately will be saved, even if it means they die and then are given an additional opportunity or go through a period of penance or or purgatory. There's a number of different ways that people can imagine that. But as you mentioned here in, in chapter 25, there is a moment that comes in which that window of opportunity has closed. And as we think about hell The language is stark and it is horrifying that there are only two eternal destinies and there will come a point in which some people will come to that horrifying realization that they've placed their hope in the wrong thing and it's too late. And so when we think about the message of hell, one, it ought to be sobering to us to make sure that we are rightly standing before God, that we are are trusting in him and not in ourselves but it also ought to give us an urgency 
that goes to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, as we think of what it would mean for them to die and go to a Christless eternity of torment. And so one of the things that honestly bothers me is sometimes Christians have almost a triumphalist view of hell. Yeah, they're going to get what they deserve when Jesus comes back. They're going to go to hell. We ought to be begging people with tears in our eyes, turn from this path, repent. I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace, and that same grace is available to you. And, And I think it's with tears and not triumphalism that we'll see people turn to Christ. Amen. Well, Tim, as we close here, a few weeks ago, in an attempt to allow listeners to get to know you just a little bit better, we talked about life growing up on a dairy farm. Uh, One of the things you said, boy, it gives me great sermon illustrations. Beyond (laughs) that, I know it's given you an awful lot there uh, out of Northeast Ohio and Wayne County. And and you talked about how God used many of those experiences to develop your faith. Uh, Today, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to and what uh, when was it that you decided you know this faith thing it's really important and I'm going to take it seriously what yeah. what point in your life did that that happen or but, points right I think it is a, a matter of points one of the things I was very blessed to have was uh, Christian heritage so my parents were both Christians both sets of my grandparents were Christians and so I had a number of very godly examples of people that I could look to that really lived out authentic faith, not just kind of going through the motions and or, or kind of having legalistic righteousness, if you will. I was also blessed to grow up in a church where God's word was faithfully taught and God's love was faithfully demonstrated. It wasn't a perfect church by any means, but it was a place where I observed people living out their faith in real ways and that they loved the Lord. And so as I grew up in being taught in Sunday school and being taught by my parents, I knew a lot of the answers about who Jesus was and what he had done. And in fact, I was pretty proud of that. You know, I, I felt like I, I had it down. But it was when I was five years old and I had, had disobeyed my dad and was, was being disciplined for that. And he kind of paused and he, he explained to me that it was that sin that I was being disciplined for that was one of the many sins that caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross. And it was like just in this moment, this Holy Spirit awareness that that God provided me, that it became personal, that Christ didn't just die for sins as some vague concept, that he died for my individual acts of disobedience. And so it was at that point that I placed my faith in Christ and began my journey of walking with Christ. But I would also say that as for many people that grow up in a Christian home, it was a period of points along the way where, you know, following Christ in baptism, uh, getting involved in our youth group and and beginning to serve and discovering how God had gifted me, uh, struggling with different sin and, and, and learning the path of repentance, that God just was so good and faithful to surround me with Christian family, Christian community that helped me to grow in those ways uh, just incrementally, little by little. And then when I was in college, that was when God began to steer me toward full-time vocational ministry. And so it wasn't just a single point, but rather a, a number of points and a number of people along the way that God used. Very good. Hey, well, thanks for sharing, and I really appreciate your uh, your interaction here. It's uh, just good to, as we say, dig deeper, but good to spend time talking about God's Word. Absolutely. 
Well, Tim Cockrell has been my guest on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 25, and you can access Tim's message as well as other Grace Baptist sermons and podcast episodes on your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. Tim will be back two in a row where Tim and I will continue discussion of God's Word in Matthew chapter 26. Until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.